0: Hello and welcome back to Work in Progress, the podcast where we invite people to talk to us about the cutting-edge work they do in their industries. My name is Meiyi and I am your host. And this episode, I have Dr. Kumita Devadas. When I first met Kumita, I thought to myself, when I grow up, I want to be Kumita. Uh, She was involved in one of the first labs that worked on CRISPR, the gene editing tool. She is a fellow of the International AIDS Society, working in gene therapy to find ways to treat AIDS. All stuff of my childhood dreams. I came to know her because she initially did this class on COVID vaccine for my students, and the kids had so many questions for her that we went way over time and still couldn't finish all the questions. That video, by the way, is available on our YouTube channel, We Can Academy. And so if you have kids who are curious about COVID vaccine development or how to become a scientist, do check that out. I wish I found that video 25 years ago. Anyway, so I've been really excited to have her back again on the podcast because this time I get to ask the questions and not the kids. Uh, We talked a lot about gene editing and AIDS, but since Kumita also runs a lab in Penang that does COVID testings, we can't really get away from talking about COVID. I intended for the content of the podcast to be evergreen, but due to the fast-changing landscape of COVID-19, some grounds may have shifted since we recorded this a few months ago. You may notice some of the terms we use may have already been revised by the WHO, for example. But still, many of the things she shared are still relevant. So with many countries aggressively vaccinating while new variants were emerging, I asked her about variants and the efficacy of vaccines against them.
1: These new variants come up when there are mutations um, in the virus. And with COVID, what you're looking at is, and this is kind of a typical number, um, you do see about two mutations per month roughly, you do get a new variant if it transmits differently. For example, when we're talking about vaccines, a lot of it were actually developed early last year itself. And of course, at that time, the strains that were predominant or that were prevalent um, was a little bit different from what you see today. But a lot of the companies that produced the vaccines, they did kind of go back and actually test the efficacy of the vaccines against these newer strains. And actually, it does seem to protect pretty well. Knowing how a lot of all these pharmaceutical companies work is if they do kind of see this constant um, lower number of efficacy, usually they would kind of just go back, try to reformulate it, kind of take some time off to try to make it a little bit better. Um, Something else that some other groups have suggested is kind of giving people two different types of vaccines. Um, of course, this would be logistically a bit more challenging, but I think it's kind of an interesting approach of looking at it. So, for example, if you know that Pfizer works really well against the South African strain, um, then, yeah, you know, maybe on top of, say, the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, something that people could consider maybe in public health is, is it worth kind of giving people two different vaccines? Mm.
0: One of the approaches to dealing with the mutations um, has mm-hmm. been to develop the so-called uh, bivalent vaccine, which is um, mm-hmm. the vaccine that is tailored for the different variants. Um, mm-hmm. How does that actually work?
1: Okay, uh, one of the important components of the virus is called the spike proteins. Um, That's also typically the component that is used in vaccines, um, just so to get your body to recognize it and to kind of respond to it appropriately. So it's usually easy to maintain all the other components of what goes into the vaccine and swapping out the spike protein region, or what we call it as antigen, um, to like the newer variants. So there was someone, a group that said that they could probably do this in as short as a month or two months. Mm.
0: So walk us through a little bit. Let's say for mm-hmm. a company like uh, Pfizer-BioNTech, they mm-hmm. say they need six weeks to uh, you know, adapt their vaccine to a new variant. What happens mm-hmm. in that six weeks?
1: It's actually literally... Again, you know, kind of swapping out the components and they would still actually do have to test it out. So they would still have to do some sort of clinical trials, um, but maybe it would be in a smaller group as compo- uh, as compared to, you know, what they've been doing all this while. So it would still go through the whole normal, you know, does it work? Um, is it safe? Um, is it okay to give to people? So I think, you know, even though, again, six weeks sounds really short, um, they actually do always, always make sure that it works, at least, you know, at that time. And they do make sure that it's safe to be given to people. Is the
0: speed with which vaccines can be made, Mm -hmm. is it down to...
1: Uh, the fact that it is using the mRNA technology? Um, Not necessarily. I would say when you talk about vaccines, at least for COVID, um, I would kind of divide it into two groups. So you have that like mRNA group, so that's your like, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and then you have your virus-based group. So you're either using another virus um, as a transport mechanism to deliver your vaccines or um, the more, some of the more traditional types of vaccines where you actually use the actual virus itself, but it's inactivated. So kind of a smaller, truncated, safer version. And the later group, the one that's virus-based, that's actually the more conventional type of vaccine. So that's something that's been around for ages. So regardless of how old you are, so if you're from the younger generation and you took things like the chickenpox vaccine or you know if you're a little bit older and you took things like the measles vaccine or BCG or whatever, so all that is very similar to the virus type of vaccines. Um, the mRNA vaccine is new. Um, Actually, this is the first time that they've done it. Um, We were talking a little bit earlier about how we use a certain part of the virus to make the vaccines. And in this case, we are using the spike protein, right? But in order to do that, you actually have to know first, um, what does the spike protein sequence look like? So what actually, what are the letters that make up the spike protein? So same thing, even when you're talking about newer variants, um, how have those letters changed? So for example, um, I'm just going to use random letters, but say your initial COVID strain, um, the spike protein was spelled as A-P-P-L-E, and then after it mutated, now it's spelled as O-P-P-L-E. You have to be able to identify those differences very quickly. And it's just that in today's day and age, you can actually get sequencing done in a few hours, and it is very cheap. So this is in comparison to 10, 20 years ago, where it would cost thousands just to get something sequenced. Um, you know, very few facilities actually had that equipment. Um, and especially with COVID Because it was It is a pandemic um, That everyone is going through um, There were multiple groups um, So I think like China I think they released the sequence In less than a week I think Part of what you do Is
0: using this CRISPR genome editing To interrupt The HIV yep. virus, right? What does that mean? Like we know that Those mm-hmm. who are HIV positive mm-hmm. Have HIV virus Residing in cells um, mm-hmm. So yeah what does therapy do? Does it affect those uh, HIV that is residing in the cells? Does it wipe them out? Uh, Does that mean Mm -hmm. that a HIV-infected person um, does not Mm -hmm. need to face this lifelong treatment uh, anymore?
1: Mm, Okay, I I really like this question. Uh, Okay, so when you talk about virus infections, there are two components, I think, which are quite Important. One is you want to try to prevent the virus from actually entering the cells. So if you are able to prevent that from happening, then you pretty much have zero infections. Um, The other approach is: Are you able to kind of improve the immune systems? You know, when you do see HIV, you're able to prevent it. Ultimately, gene therapy with HIV. At least what my group does is we actually do take both approaches so using this genome editing we target the virus and instead of that long big chunk of virus we're able to kind of chop it up into really small pieces and when that happens they're not able to infect the cells anymore Um, but also kind of using gene editing we are able to use CRISPR to kind of improve the immune system so we know for example um, say you know Whenever you have more of cell A, your body is able to fight better. So we are actually able to do that as well. And how exactly do you do that? So there are this group of people known as elite controllers. So um, they are a pretty amazing group. It's very rare but they are people that even though they've been infected, they actually don't fall sick. So the virus number um, remains very low but their immune system is very good. And when we studied this group, we actually found that they had a few different genes which actually made their immunity a little bit better. All of us actually do have a lot of all this naturally occurring antiviral genes in our body. Um, but again, it just depends on how much we have it. But we usually want them to be high enough or we want them to act enough. So in this case, some of the genes that we identified, one of it is called P21, for example, and it's actually the same gene that we found that actually works in cancer as well. Or, You know, it, it's related to um, be able to influence the progression of cancers. You know, you do see a lot of similar genes, a lot of similar interactions. So again, using genome editing, we actually went in and made sure that those genes are expressed at high level. Um, That's kind of a simplified manner of how things work. But yeah, generally what we would do then is kind of taking these two components, we would actually still need to package it into um, a delivery method. So in this case, we would actually be using the similar method that was used by like AstraZeneca. So putting it into viral vector um, and then introducing that back into the HIV patient.
0: Okay. And what has the results been?
1: So far, it is uh, very optimistic, very encouraging. Um, But um, I will tell you this. So, In reality, um, quite different to what you've seen with the vaccines is that the work does take a bit longer because we do first test it out in the lab and then we move on to like a small group of patients and then we kind of start working with a larger group of patients. So right now, I would say we're at the stage of the small group of patients. So we are hoping that, you know, in a year or so, we'll have a lot more data
0: I see. This uh, elite controller uh, group of people, they mm-hmm. do not fall sick. Are they able to transmit the virus?
1: The, the The current belief is that no, they are not able to. So usually how it works with um, HIV and probably even a lot of different viruses is that if your viral load is really, really, really low, you're actually not able to transmit it to people. So even with COVID, for example, um, say you're infected, Um, on day one, chances are you're actually not able to pass it on to people then. Usually only by day five, day six, is it actually high enough that you're actually able to pass it on to other people. So it's kind of like a bell-shaped curve almost with typical viruses. Mm. Um, So the early stages and the late stages, you actually have very low viral load. And
0: they don't have to take the medication that other patients have to take every day.
1: Yes, correct. So, so it's pretty amazing and that's what we've kind of been looking at as a model for how we perceive HIV cure to look like.
0: I think when talking about HIV and gene editing, I think we can't run away from that episode where a Chinese scientist claims to have edited the genes of babies so that they are less susceptible to contract HIV. Walk me through what your take is, given how much controversy this is and in the light of
1: the work that you do. Okay. So what he did was what we call germline gene editing. If you do change something, every single cell would be changed as well. And it is something that gets passed on to the next generation as well, which was already very controversial because there were no regulations in place for it. And it wasn't a genetic disorder. So if you're talking about a genetic disorder, which is uh, maybe if you get it, you wouldn't be able to live past say three or four years old, that's something that's a bit more urgent, right? Um, At least what a lot of researchers in the field thought was that it seemed to be a bit more of, you know, he was trying to chase the glitz and glamour of being the first person in the world to do it. So he did kind of try to manipulate or remove one of those entry points for the virus, but he didn't necessarily succeed. So if the cell actually has four different gates for the virus to enter, um, he only got rid of one. So there's still those three three more gates, kind of, um, (laughs) that the virus could use. So so it kind of defeated the whole purpose, right? I mean, even if that's what you want to do, then ultimately you hope to be able to block all four. But in this case, you know, you have these two babies who are modified, but they are actually still very much at risk for HIV. Mm. Um, Something that comes up a lot is the issue of ethics. Um, Who who gets to decide? If you're talking about CRISPR as a gene therapy, say you're using it for cancer, um, which a lot of studies have been done on cancer, you can kind of go up to a cancer patient and say, hey, again, these are the pros and cons. This is what may happen. Do you want to do it? But if you are modifying babies, um, they don't get a say. Is that consensus?
0: Is there still ongoing debate as to what should or can be done in using CRISPR?
1: Okay, I have a very long answer to this. Okay. It, it raises the question of, you know, at what point um, is too little or at what point is it? Too much, does that actually kind of increase the gap of the rich and poor? Then would that mean that only those who can afford it, they are able to do something like that? Um, and again, you know, if that's okay, then would the next step then be something like they want to change their hair colour, but instead of getting it dyed, they want to go in and change the jeans for the hair colour. Right. And, and make me six feet so, tall or something like and that. And yeah, make it six feet tall, um, you know, if it's something that's just aesthetic, that's fine. But then, you know, what if it's someone who is supposed to be in the Olympics and they increase the amount of muscle they have and so they're mm. able to do better win a gold medal. When it comes to enhancement, typically that's a no in the field right now. Again, I don't know if this will change in the future, but right now um, for genome editing, it is very much focused on diseases and it is very much focused on that's kind of your last resort which means the benefits really outweigh everything else Um, when you're talking about costs or how easy it is say it's you're talking about again like a flu you know you're most likely going to be okay Um, would they allow for the genome editing of that probably not. I mean, definitely not now. Um, When you're talking about things like cancer, HIV, when you're talking about genetic diseases, that's something that's a bit harder to get out of. We do have a lot of really good treatments, but if gene therapy may be a slightly better approach, um, that's something that's worth considering. So whenever you want to do any of this CRISPR work, um, there's again, a lot of regulation that goes into it. So Ethics was something that I mentioned earlier. So if you want to test it out on someone, you do have to get ethical approval from them. And they do have to understand it well. Um, So in Malaysia, at least they do a really good job of it. So for example, um, if you wrote up about this genome modification of HIV in English, but you're speaking to someone who may not speak English very well. Um, you know, the, the body governing it will make sure that you draw it out for them or you actually right. write it in a different language that you know, so, so people actually know what they're getting into. Um, you also have a biosafety component to it. Uh, Could something potentially go wrong? So we're talking about humans here, but what if you're trying to modify, say, a cow and you want to make a cow produce more milk? Um, What would happen if this cow one day decides to run away? Is that bad for the environment, for example? Mm -hmm. Um, or likewise, you know, you're talking about humans as well, bio-safety. Can you predict what the side effects may be? So in the case of the babies that we were talking about earlier, um, you know how I said that the virus could potentially enter through four doors? Um, was that something that they could have predicted earlier? Um, they do have to be kind of very straightforward about it so that the panel also knows, you know, they, they can evaluate the projects fairly. So, and then the last aspect is... Um, biosecurity but this is just more of you know making sure no one takes the technology and uses it for the wrong reasons um i think what happened with the babies lulu and nana really made everyone a bit more aware about what's going on so they kind of did put a stop to germline gene therapy at that point right so Uh, yeah is is
0: this a global moratorium on germline (laughs) editing?
1: Yeah, it is a global moratorium. I think um, different different countries do kind of have slightly different regulations as well. Um, I would say the US, I, they, they definitely were the pioneers. They tend to be a bit more progressive and a bit more open to things. Um, in Malaysia, it's pretty new. So I think, yeah, I, I, I believe I was the pioneer in Malaysia. So it's mm. been around for about seven years now Um, but yeah I think when I got back to Malaysia it was you know working with a lot of different bodies to try to come up with you know the guidelines in the past um, when it came to this moratorium there's often this debate about who gets to decide right me being a scientist of course the first thing I think of is well you definitely kind of need a scientist in it but I think if the entire panel were just scientists or researchers um, you would probably get a very skewed type of um response because probably everyone will be like, Yeah, I do want my work to be published. So yes, let's just say yes to everything. Um so you know, and then we also have some people we do need people from like a legal background. Um there's been a huge um push to have the public in the groups as well and a lot of countries have actually done this. People are also kind of looking at cultural slash religious aspect as well, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Mm-hmm. CoLab's Coworking is a co-sharing
0: workspace uniquely designed for rising entrepreneurs, freelancers, startups and corporates. Their mission is to create a modern workspace that will inspire, uplift and help pave the way for members to achieve their goals through its ever-growing ecosystem. Collapse is giving the listeners of Work in Progress a free day pass at any of their five locations in Klang Valley. To redeem, go to bit.ly slash Collapse Free Day Pass. That's bit.ly slash C-O-L-A-B-S Free Day Pass. The Work in Progress podcast is brought to you by Weekend Academy a school that brings professionals to introduce students to wide-ranging topics from diverse industries, to give kids the opportunities to discover their interests, nurture their talents, and build the skills necessary to close the social capital gap. If you like what we do, both in making this podcast and in providing high-quality education to the students who need it the most, help us further our mission by donating to us at wecanacademy.org podcast. That's w-e-c-a-n-academy.org slash podcast. Thank you. You were involved in a lab that was uh, one of the pioneers of uh, CRISPR. the UK. Mm-hmm. How was that uh, experience like? How did you get into the lab and what kind of research were you doing?
1: I kind of started in a plant lab. So they were trying to study if they could come up or identify a gene which would make a plant drought resistant. They were tomatoes. So you could grow them up in really countries with really, really hot climate and you know, it would be okay. Um, at the same time, I was also working in an animal lab where they were working on transgenic animals. So they were trying to get goats to produce milk with different nutrients different properties that was me when I kind of first started research and then uh, I was lucky because yeah one of the pioneer at the time uh, the tool that was used in genome editing is called zinc finger nucleases at that time there were probably only what less than 10 groups out there that was working on it no one had heard about genome editing after zinc finger nucleases came Talens I was still in the lab and then finally CRISPR I think all of us remember when CRISPR came out in 2012, back then when we first started with finger nucleases, um, to make a single zinc finger nucleus would take weeks and it cost about 25,000 US dollars. So um, by the time CRISPR came around, it's actually something that you can put together in as little as one day, and then yeah, it was just this kind of huge explosion. Everyone started working on it. I feel like I was a huge part of the whole genome editing history. I do feel extremely happy and extremely proud to be able to kind of bring this back to Malaysia. As I mentioned earlier, being able to be involved in setting up the guidelines in Malaysia, being able to participate in talks. So, I think recently, the most recent chat I had with someone was about uh, from a religious perspective. So kind of what we need to know to make people more at ease. When I first came back, CRISPR was a term that no one had heard of before. I think people were a bit more familiar with zinc finger nucleases. new places. I, I do have my own lab. It's quite fun to me <laughs> a little bit because sometimes when I walk around, I kind of feel like a mini celebrity sometimes because I kind of get people kind of just like you know like screaming like oh my god you work on genome editing and, oh, really? and it's a bit funny who, who are these <laughs> yeah. people
0: who are starstruck
1: <laughs> It you know it sometimes it can be students or researchers it's just a mix of people um, while I'm walking around or some kind of having people just come up just to strike a conversation and ask a bit more about it is nice or sometimes it maybe they themselves who's always been interested in mm-hmm. it. What was the biggest challenge
0: of uh, starting this lab here?
1: To be honest, I don't know. I guess I'm someone who's never really looked at things as a challenge, really. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of funny, but um, yeah, because I think I always look at things as the positive. Um, and, you know, even if there's anything, just kind of found a way around it. I do wish that um, the, the field of genome editing is something that can develop um, in Malaysia and can progress. So I, I don't want us to just be people who you know look at the US and UK and just use their technologies, but be able to contribute a bit more to the field. The environment, I would
0: imagine, is quite mm-hmm. different in the US and, and here. What are the biggest differences that you, you found when you first moved back here?
1: I I think you're right. It is different and i think it's different just because um i think whenever you're trying to start something new often you would be the first person or the only person working on it and and when you are trying to develop something new you often do need a significant portion of funding Mm. i mean i think this is true regardless of whether you're in the sciences or you know just any jobs out there right even though there are a lot of different options when it comes to funding in Malaysia, the amount is significantly different <laughs> to what's being done. <laughs> and and I don't it say this, yeah. <laughs> it, it is a bit different. Um, so I think here, one thing that I've, I, the way I look at it is often kind of, you know, with a certain chunk of money, how can you really, really optimize it? I mean, it does teach you to, Plan, You know, be a better planner. Um, And if you don't have as much funding, um, then what you do is you learn to work with a lot more people. You learn to collaborate um, because there always is someone who is happy to work with you. So I wouldn't say one is necessarily better than the other. I think they both kind of teach you different lessons. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, I remember uh, mm-hmm. attending a TEDxKL and what the, the speaker there was a former team leader of a NASA project. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ooh. obviously, uh, and she decided to come back to Malaysia. And obviously, when okay. you are used to the funding that you have in NASA, and <laughs> all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're trying to do science back in Malaysia, uh, she said the yeah. exact same thing, that
1: funding Ooh. is very limited and that yeah. makes you more creative And
0: So I I see a
1: trend here You know, you learn to not waste I think that's what it is Um, I I do remember having a very different mentality back then um, When I was in college Because you could do anything, right? You could mess something up You could try 10 different things If something goes wrong, that's fine just start over the next day because you probably had, you know, all this like unlimited supply and unlimited stock of something. Mm. Um, But now I think it is a bit more, yeah, you you are a bit more cautious. You do spend a bit more time thinking about it. Um, You know, do you really want to look at this certain aspect Um, or can you look at a completely different aspect using a different method? You you become a bit smarter about how you plan.
0: Would that affect um, younger scientists? So... Who have substantially okay. uh, you know, less experience than you, who have not had the ability to try and fail as much due to lack of resource. Um, Do you think that that uh, scarcity is something that holds them back?
1: Uh, I. That is an interesting question that I think I often talk about with my fellow academicians because I think yeah, most of us here actually did study abroad and we had that space to make mistakes here you're right I think um, in that they may not have that much opportunity maybe try a lot more different things I do hope that is something that will change over time um, I'm not sure how um, we we do try in whatever small ways possible so you know What we can do right now at least is be able to come up with workshops or training. I always hope that that doesn't discourage people um, because I think knowledge and experience you can always get as long as you're willing to look for it. If if
0: there's one thing that you would like for every child
1: in Malaysia to know about what you do Mm -hmm. uh,
0: and your profession, Mm -hmm. what would that be?
1: Um, wow. Okay. I, interesting question. Um, one thing I learned is if something isn't available, you learn to create that opportunity for you. And that probably goes back to kind of even the field I'm working in. It was new, right? So no one kind of knew what to do with it, but I was very lucky because, you know, I was able to just kind of do anything I wanted to do. So even if you do want to do something new, something different, don't feel like you're alone. Chances are there will be people who will be extremely, extremely supportive of your dreams. Go for it and don't be discouraged no matter what, whatever challenges you may face.
0: What do you think allow you to have that ability to just say that okay i want to do this so i do it (laughs) i'm I'm wondering if it's cause of the experience you've had overseas is it a, a drive kind of thing what what is that
1: I grew up in a B40 family, so when I was younger, this is going to sound extremely nerdy, but all I really wanted to do was to be able to go off to college in the US, and that's just because we always heard about how the education system in the US is amazing, and I wanted to be able to experience that for myself. And it was always kind of this, this thought of, if you are able to get education, Um, you're able to change your life around. When I got there as well, Mm -hmm. it always kind of felt like this is my shot, this is my opportunity to to make a difference, to make a change, right? I'm so far away from home. If I don't make the most out of my life, then it would kind of be wasted. So I think when I got there, it was anytime an opportunity presented itself to me, I would just grab it. Eventually, that kind of became my mindset. It's this mm. feeling of yeah you know you can do anything just do it just try and even if you fail that's okay you still learn something and you can improve on it the next time and and I think one thing I learned as well is that you know whatever it is even if you fail it's usually not something that's so terrible that you can't you know kind of pull yourself up and try again right and I think that's something that I still practice today and I try to you know, tell my students the same thing as well. Just optimism and positivity goes a long way. Okay.
0: If there are three books that you have read that you find you know, life changing or really important that you think um, everyone should read, or what are they?
1: Um, do they have to be science related, no, or it, it be really can be all? anything at all? that have impacted you. Mm. Okay. I I do read a lot. So it was really, it's really difficult for me trying to think of what are the three books that I would recommend. So I'm probably just going to pick some that I read a bit more recently compared to the older ones. So I think the first one is Quiet by Susan Cain. So it is a book about introvert so what does it mean if you're an introvert and how would that affect your life and how do you kind of fit in so for me this is something that I personally like because to actually describe myself as someone who's kind of shy kind of quiet I'm definitely an introvert and people often think that um, a good leader is someone who is extroverted but that's not necessarily true this book kind of helps me kind of be able to differentiate and how do you kind of still fit in? Um, how, do you, how are you able to contribute? It was, I think, a little bit more of like self-awareness sort of thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like it and I do recommend it, especially for people who feel like really self-conscious about it. The other one is Becoming by Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. So, so I like all this like women leaders <laughs> and whatnot. Um, it's very inspirational. Um, and I liked it because she herself, I think, is an amazing person. Um, I, I do enjoy often reading about politics. So I, I minored in psychology, so I often want to know the why behind things. Mm. Um, what drives people? Uh, she, she was very good at all that. How did she deal with family? How did she deal with coming from the background that she did? How did she deal with having such a popular husband? Um, how do you kind of make sure you you do do well in all your different roles so and my third book this is a bit different but i quite liked um, Modern Romance by Aziz (laughs) Sarri. So this actually kind of goes back to, I think, my cultural background a little bit. So it's a book about modern romance. And he kind of starts off by talking about his parents and how his parents were in an arranged marriage. So my parents were in an arranged marriage too. But he talks about how our generation today, when you talk about romance, I don't know romance, I think just anything in general, we have all these options, so many options. We take such a long time to come up with a particular decision, right? But is that kind of really better than how people used to do things the old way where it was like, okay, I like this. And you just kind of go with that options. Of course, the book was in the context of romance, but I think this applies to anything. Um, You know, how we make our decisions. Is having all these options really better? Or sometimes do we kind of just go with our gut feeling and say, all right, I'm going to pick this I'm going to make this work Um, I don't think there's any real right or wrong answer but I think it definitely helps with navigating the differences between the generational gap (laughs) that we see today so I would say that's kind of the three that comes to mind um, at the moment but yeah, again I, I have a long list of books that I love but I'm going to stop here now Okay, great Thank you so much,
0: Kumita It was great having you on the show and that is our show. Thank you so much for listening in. Work in Progress is brought to you by Weekend Academy and is produced, edited and hosted by me, Yap Mei Yi. Music is by Caffeine Creek Band. Ad music is by Jazar. I'd love to hear what you think of the show. Email me with feedback, questions, suggestions at wepod.wecan at gmail.com. That's w-i-p-p-o-d dot at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks time. Thank you.